it was like my whole chest just it was like it felt my you know when you're away from your family when you're away from your kids it was like it was just dry cracked earth and then when my boy you know looked at me and had his arms out it was like that dry earth just filled up with you know fresh water and you know you know life was there again I want to be my current self from this point forward. I want to learn how to play piano. Working with human beings. Drinking wine in the middle of the day. I want to be a fire truck driver. I'm going to be the next greatest painter. Just kind of work with kids, getting them ahead in life. I want to be a welder. I want to be a beach bum. I want to be a baseball player. Brewmaster. A winemaker. Professional snuggler. Let me mention those sweet, hot lavender baths and writing in the evening. What's up, everybody? I'm Blake Fletcher, and this is the Half Hour Intern Podcast, where we explore the interesting paths that people take in life. And before we get started with today's episode, I just wanted to update you all on the contest that is going on right now. And if me saying that makes you say to yourself, what are you talking about, Blake? What the hell What the hell contest is this that you're talking about? I, uh, I will go ahead and give you a quick recap. So on Monday, September the 5th episode, we started a contest thanks to the guest that was on the show that day, Eric Hobbs. He was a corporate lawyer, and he's a corporate lawyer for a outdoor recreation company, a company that makes like camping gear and stuff like that. So Eric was nice enough to donate three really cool prizes to the show to be able to do a contest. And this contest is centered around iTunes reviews. So the only thing that you have to do to enter the contest is leave an iTunes review for Half Hour Intern. Uh, Pretty simple. And he gave us three really awesome things to give away. If you want to see what those things are, just go to halfhourintern.com and there is a link to uh, all the contest details right there on the homepage, including um, links to the different things that we have to give away. But they're all really, really cool. Um, And then I will be giving away a fourth prize to a fourth winner for the most... uh, most like fun or most unique review that someone leaves for the show. So the contest will be going until Wednesday, September 21st. Um, on the 21st, I will be drawing the three winners uh, just through basically a raffle. And uh, and I'll be announcing the winners on the show on September 22nd. So the, the contest has only been go, uh, going on for uh day or two now and already three of you guys have left reviews so thank you so much to monkey man 125 a fellow listener and george mitchless uh george you are actually in a different country but thanks to a a a website called omni studio i'm able to see your review anyways so i will speak with eric and see if international reviews can be included in this and if we um can send these products out internationally i'm not sure if that's something that we're going to be able to do but i appreciate you so much leaving a review and anybody that is international listening right now Um, I would, man, I would appreciate it so much if you left a review for the show as well. Um, I'll, I'll let you guys know on Monday, the status of whether or not we'll be able to send out prizes internationally, or if you are just leaving those reviews out of the goodness of your heart. But if it is just out of the goodness of your heart, I seriously appreciate it so, so, so much. It really, really helps out the show. So anyways, on to today's episode. In today's episode, I interviewed Tim Thomas, who is an Australian special forces veteran. Tim is a really amazing guy that uh, that learned some really deeply philosophical and spiritual lessons through his time in the special forces and uh, you'll really feel that and hear that in everything that we talk about in today's episode and he used these lessons that he learned um, both kind of for good in deployment and then when he came back home and when he was out in deployment he not only helped out his own life but he really helped out the lives of the soldiers around him due to this kind of shift 
in personal philosophy and uh, in spirituality, if you want to call it that, um, while he was out there. And uh, he took those lessons when he came back home as well and is now using them in working with a group, a nonprofit called Mates for Mates, where he helps um, veterans that have come home um, and uh, it's just amazing work that they're doing. It's amazing work that he's doing. And he's just a really awesome, uh, awesome guy. So without further ado, here is Australian Special Forces. Tim, thanks so much for coming on the show today. No problem, Blake. Thanks for inviting me in. Yeah, absolutely, man. I, um, I'm really excited to learn more about your story. And I'm so thrilled that you got introduced to me from a mutual friend and actually past guest of the show. So... I watched a, a video in which you gave a talk about your passion for free diving and sort of your experience in Afghanistan and in war. And we'll get to some of the free diving stuff um, a bit later in the interview. But it, I, I think just to kind of set the stage for the whole interview, if you could tell a little bit about your story and your um, with regard to war and like your story in Afghanistan and kind of what ended up becoming the driving force for you working with Mates for Mates. Okay. Um, in 2004, the Australian government started a scheme called the DRS scheme, which is direct recruiting into special forces. They were looking at sort of people that could, I think initially there was like five to 10,000 people interested, but then they went through a bunch of screenings of physical screenings, uh, mental aptitude, IQ, IQ psychological um, and, and a number of different ones, and it got down to a group of 65 guys. Uh, I was lucky enough to be in that initial intake uh, in 2004, and we did all the basic training, and then we did our advanced training, and then we did our selection course, and, and at the end we had maybe 12 guys that made it. Um, and, again, I was lucky enough to be one of the 12. Wow. And uh, – so we went through um, in 2004, about a year and a half later, we all were, well, the 12 or so were beret qualified uh, in the Australian Special Forces Commandos. Um, and in 2005, I believe, we got the call up for Afghanistan. Um, and I really enjoyed, I mean, I know it's going to sound crazy, but I really enjoyed Afghanistan because I guess... I never really, I mean, I love the job, but I never really fit in with the army culture. Um, you know, it was, I mean, what they don't tell you about the special forces is, you know, when we're not fighting the enemy, we're fighting each other, you know, um, a lot of alpha type personality types. So, and, and I observed with um, insecure alpha personality types that they always need someone to um, kick sand in the face of. Yeah, like um, you you can never be you can never be caught being wrong in a conversation or anything like that. Otherwise, it's emasculating. Yeah, and so in their minds, there's always going to be some guy that's wrong or some guy that is going to get slammed, and they don't want it to be them. So they, you know, often victimize others. And and it was and I gave it to him on a platter because I never went. I didn't. I don't mind drinking, but I didn't go out drinking regularly. I had a young family. Um, the culture in the in the army, I really struggled with, um, and it was quite easy to to sort of be on the outside. It was quite, I gave it, I made it easy for them to me be the guy that always got sort of picked on uh, because I I uh, like I said didn't drink very much. Um, I had a certain spirituality, um, and 
when Afghanistan came along, I finally had a chance to show that I could do this job. You know, I could do this job. And and after Afghanistan, guys were coming up and saying, look, actually, we're sorry. We were um, completely thinking you couldn't do the job, but after these jobs that we did, um, we know we now know differently. Mm, that's so interesting, I, I, I found Afghanistan are quite, quite good in the way that it was all about doing the job and, and you know, people don't value you until they actually see the, the value themselves, you know. So Afghanistan gave me a chance to actually, you know, prove myself as a soldier. But, but more than that, Blake, it, a few things happened over there that, uh, that really affect me to this day. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm talking about this in a, in a positive light. One was before I left to go over there, I, I genuinely, hand on my heart, thought I was going to die, you know, like before I left. So everything I was doing in build-up training, you know, saying goodbye to the kids at the airport, I thought, well, I'm, I'm not coming back. So I, I got really good insurance, you know, so they'd be taken care of financially. I made a bunch of videos um, so my kids could, um, you know, at least have uh, an understanding of what their father was. And... Um, I prepared myself for that for that end state as best I could. Uh, and Tim, that's that's crazy, that, man. Like, do you mean that you you tried to prepare yourself mentally for the concept that there was a chance you would die, or like like you said, like no, you I, actually thought that you were going to die? And if it was the latter, then why did you go? What are, what the heck? Yeah. Well, for whatever reason, I genuinely thought that. I remember uh, being in my gun pit. We were been outside the wire for a number of weeks. You know, we'd been shot at, rocketed, mortared. Guys had been blown up, and I'm like, "What's the freaking point?" I'm, I'm, I'm. You know, everyone's. You know, when the enemy's not around, we're all turning on each other. Um, and you know, I'm going to die anyway. So what's the point? You know, I felt completely out of energy, no energy whatsoever, flat, no options, no hope. Um. And then something come to me said, you know, Tim, it's it is like you've got two cents worth of energy, so you better invest that properly because you've only got two cents. Uh, and then I sort of came up with this concept that energy is a lot like money in the way that how you invest it's how you get it back. And so when the time came um, to actually get rest, when everyone would just sort of crash and hit the ground, I'd take a, a few minutes just to do some you know, slow, long stretching with breathing. Now, that would be called yoga. I didn't really know it at the time, but that's what I was doing. Um, and all of a sudden, that quality of my sleep increased and I woke up and I had four cents worth of energy, okay? And then I kept on, then I invested that four cents into more sort of remedial getting me me back into body, you know, four cents become eight, 16, 32, until I came came to a point where I was energized enough to do my job sufficiently and then, uh, you know, instead of just yoga when I um, went to sleep, when I was waking up, on top of an already busy day, I'd do extra, you know, push-ups, sit-ups, squats, and that would energize me for the day. And then I realized um, once I had enough energy for me, I could control what was around me, but then when I created an abundance, with that abundance, I could then put it into others. And... 
I could then influence the world outside of me if I was in an abundance of energy. So if I had more money than I needed, then what do I do with the surplus? Okay, because as far as energy goes, it's got a shelf life of 24 to 36 hours. So what I do with that abundance is going to come back to me um, one way or another. So I then started investing in my team saying, well, what do they need to get through their day? You know, once I started um, going from adequate into abundance, I could ask, what is it that my team needs? And when that started to happen, um, all of a sudden, the chances of me dying, I suppose, I mean, who do you want around you when good times turn bad? You know, do you want, you know, strong, you know, switched on guys or do you want fatigued, you know, um, tired guys? So um, I started sort of seeing my own, personal investments as an opportunity to influence the outside world. And one thing led to another. Once my team was starting to, uh, you know, improve, then I thought, well, what about other teams? And then I started, um, I had this, one thing I did have was some and a supply of fresh coffee. So I'd make this um, flask of coffee with, you know, put some caramel and chocolate in there and I'd walk it over to the other um, vehicle. Now that might not sound like very much, but to an alpha male, when you do an act of service to them, then all of a sudden you're below them. You know what I mean? And I'm an alpha male too. Uh, so, you know, you'd walk over, drop, you know, give them a, a, a coffee and they'd call you, a, you know, a brew bitch. Um, <laughs> That's so ridiculous. I can't believe yeah, that. I know, but, it's, it, but, you know, the world is the way it is and not the way we want it to be, uh, yeah. you know. Uh, and so I thought, well, how can I do this and be happy about this? And then I thought, well, and this is this is where it gets, it's a bit weird. Um, I actually heard a whisper on my shoulder, and I think, and like it was audible, like I heard it, and it was, take the ego out. And I didn't understand what that meant, but as time went on, I started to understand it more because when I started to drop off that coffee, I'd step back to the other vehicle and I'd observe that, that vehicle and that team interacting. You know, and they're all arguing with each other, but then they take that cup of coffee and then that, you can see it registers in their brain that this is really good coffee. And all of a sudden, they're not in the hellhole of Afghanistan. They're back home at a coffee shop. You know, their shoulders relax. They look up at the sky a bit and then they start communicating, you know. And I thought, it doesn't matter if they like me, hate me, call me names. They're stronger. Therefore, my survivability has just gone up. And it took me to go to that, you know, that harsh place of the war zone Afghanistan to realize the importance of strengthening my fellow person. Yeah, it's uh, it's incredible to have to go to such an extreme place and live in such extreme conditions to to get a lesson like that. But, I mean, lessons like that are do come very difficultly and for most people they never come their entire lives to to be able to to check your ego um and live with an amount of stoicism is probably one of the most difficult things that there can be to do well it's interesting you say you know check your ego i I actually called it the the ego bridge because if you want to get anywhere if you dropped your ego it becomes a bridge and you walk over it um so imagine doing living life or doing something and you had completely no concern about what other people thought and whatever other people said. You know, that's that's freedom incarnate, you know. Uh, and, you know, what the hell was I fighting for? 
So it didn't just, I mean, you know, one thing leads to another. Before I knew it, I had other teams coming in. I was giving them coffee and then the officers would come down, okay? And it wasn't a case of the officers standing there going, man, we're going to do this, 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 some disjointed sort of idea of what the officers thought. These guys had conversations um, and there was two things I got out of that. Um, the most powerful thing on this planet is not a weapon, it's a conversation, you know, and that's what these guys were having. And the other thing I saw was, yeah, these people came together and they started talking like real people and communications and, and tactics and, and, you know, resource allocation and it was just happening so, you know, everything got better. And I thought, well, I'm not actually saying anything here and I'm not actually even involved in these conversations, but I'm actually the most influential person in the room. And I started seeing the power of servanthood, not servitude, servanthood. I mean, we all kind of know these things, but to have that message go from your head actually into your heart, that's, that's you know, something that makes a, a massive difference. And so what I've found is, you know, and this is something I do at the um, the Veteran Recovery Centre uh, Mates for Mates is I've observed people have 98% of everything they need in this world. All they need is the right environment for it to come out. Yeah, man, you're absolutely right. And it's interesting that you say that because something I was thinking about as you were telling your entire story is that this is exactly why we should not despair um, during the the sad and dark, difficult times of our lives, because so much of the time, the the fertile soil for a, a a beautiful idea to be born and to really truly take root, like you said, in your heart and not just in your head, is is in those difficult and turbulent times um, when things are are great and awesome it's not often that you that you really take to heart a difficult concept like that well i think that was i mean i was feeling so sort of torn up um and a lot of our dark and difficult times is just stuff that we haven't been willing to let go of things we haven't been willing to let go of or lessons that we're trying not to learn parts of this that are refusing to change um so that experience for me um, brought extra clarity, I suppose, to um, understanding those parts of myself that didn't want to die, okay? Those selfish parts of me that didn't want to die, they, they scream the loudest just before they die. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, they try and say, you know, don't do anything. But fear is, you know, what I, I learn a lot about fear over there, and the opposite of fear isn't love. Um, you have to understand what the goal of fear actually is. Um, and the goal of fear is, is actually to immobilize you, to have you not even attempt, not even try to have you stay stationary um, because it knows if you did try, if you did attempt, you can do it. You know, fear sort of keeps you in this cage where it'll tell you the door is locked and you'll lie down in that cage. And if you think you're going to get up and check the door, the fear will yell out, and it's, no, don't even try. It's terrible. Don't, don't move. Don't even attempt it. Um, when you, you know, but because it knows if you walk up and push on that door, it's not even locked. It's only you that's 
sort of kept yourself in there. Yeah. Um, so that was, you know, one of the, I guess, understandings I got around fear. So conversely, the way to dispel fear is actually through movement. We focused on um, a lot of a lot of the great stuff that, or I shouldn't say great, but but the better lessons and the good things that you learn while you were in Afghanistan. Um, we'll skip over some of the bad stuff. Um, I'll put a link to the other story, like this other great story that you tell um, in this video online about this near death experience that you had. You don't you don't have to re really go over the whole thing here, but. Um, it it's really amazing and just a great lesson that you were able to pull out of that as well. And obviously there was a lot of uh, like dark times uh, being in Afghanistan. So um, let's talk about you coming back first and then we'll talk about the decision eventually for you to join mates for mates and to start helping out other veterans. So first of all, do you remember the day that your service ended? Well, we, um, I was, we were flew in long trip. And we were met by one of our guys that had his legs blown off. And he he had two prosthetics on. Um, and it was great. It was like, this is fantastic being able to see this guy who, you know, um, we were, uh, you know, thinking a lot about. And uh, there he was standing to meet us. Um, so that was very pleasant. And, and what I didn't quite realise is since the event, you know, tank mine lost his legs guys working on him and he doesn't remember too much of that the guys that were there had the conversation with him about what actually happened precipitating the event um and he'd not heard that before you know so that was that was like a moment in history then we went um you know through customs blah 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 and then i remember my boy, I saw my boy running, and we're, I'm all in my army gear, so we all kind of look the same. So my boy, who was maybe four or five at the time, he was sort of jumping around trying to sort of get a reference on where Dad was, and I sort of dropped to my knee and I said, Corbin. And when he saw me, it was like my whole chest just, it was like it felt my, you know, when you're away from your family, when you're away from your kids, it was like it was just dry, cracked earth. And then when my boy, you know, looked at me and had his arms out, it was like that dry earth just filled up with, you know, fresh water and, you know, uh, you know, life was there again. So that was that was amazing. Um, and obviously, you know, the, the the wife was very happy to see me back alive. And um, we, you know, we we kicked back into, um, you know, regular, you know, army life. You know, I go back to my hometown with my wife. Uh, at that time, I had uh, undiagnosed PTSD, which uh, was affecting my family life. And the problem with PTSD is you don't know you've got it when you've got it. Um, so when I got to Brisbane... I sort of had to go through the, you know, nearly losing my family before I um, came across a, a, I came to this solution quite strangely, but um, hi, and just let me understand, let me just explain the chemistry behind um, having your nervous system on high alert. You have a lot of cortisol going through your system. Now, high levels of cortisol for extended periods of time 
drive your hormone levels into the ground, okay? And low hormone levels, um, they sometimes call it adrenal fatigue, but what happens is you can't, your body's always tired, but you can't rest properly. You know, someone can brush past you and you turn into the Incredible Hulk. You know, uh, you have cravings for all sorts of sugar or different things, um, and you're just a generally a, an, a grumpy old bugger. Um, so I sort of somehow accidentally found out that my hormone levels were low, and this endocrinologist said, no, I see this all the time with the veterans, you know, high cortisol, low testosterone, um, and the problem is you can do a testosterone test and the doctor will say, yeah, you're within the limits, but for you to do what you normally do, you're much higher than average anyway, okay? So he understood that, and so he started supplementing me, you know, um, and me- and obviously closely monitoring it, and after 30 days, my wife said, oh, I feel like I've got my old husband back. And I said, when did this start? And she said, because I didn't actually tell my wife that I was doing this. Um, and she said, oh, about 30 days ago. And I'm like, how can that be? Because I didn't notice any change. <laughs> I had a bit more energy and I could see that my kids were happier and they were doing better at school. But I didn't like, I'm a bloke, you know, how can something be in charge of my life and me not know about it? So sometimes I would go off the pills just to see if I could contain it and see if my wife would notice. And boom, she noticed straight away. You know, I'm like, oh, shit, is there some, yeah, like I said, some invisible force in my life that is controlling me that is so powerful that I don't even know it's there. Um, And so, you know, I told my wife what I was doing. She said, keep doing it. But then I thought, then the question came, well, that was one area of my life that was out of balance that I didn't even know it was out of balance. And then when I brought it back up to the levels it was supposed to be, I'm feeling a whole lot better for it you know what, I wonder if there's anything else in my life that needs balancing out. And so then I had the confidence to go see a psychologist, the confidence to go see a psychiatrist. And, you know, I became a lot more open to these things. Whereas before that, um, you know, it was just, you know, uh, you know, me against the world. So that was sort of my journey into that. And the thing is, What they don't tell you about psychologists is, I mean, it took me about six years to find a good one, okay? Psychologists, you know, they're like coffee shops. There's two in every block, but you've got to work really hard to find a good one, okay? And the good ones generally have a... That's a great analogy. And the the good ones generally have a queue out the door, you know, and you've got to to wait to get in. But but most blokes being blokes, we don't ask for help until it's, um, you you know, DEFCON 5. And we say, we need help and help right now. And, you know, that first cab off the rank that you grab isn't necessarily the best site that you're supposed to see, you know, because the ones that are available aren't necessarily the good ones. You know, that that 18-year-old psych student on work experience might not necessarily be the best match for, you know, a bloke who's really gone through some shit. So this is a conversation I have with the veterans. I mean, at Mates and Mates, we're quite lucky we have a lot of most all of these services under one roof. So we have um, psychologists, we have counsellors, we have exercise physiologists, we have, uh, you know, obviously a gym, we have social engagements um, and adventure activities. There's a lot of guys out there saying, look, I honestly tried my hardest with these sites and they just don't work, okay? And and I believe them. 
but the thing is, no one tells you that, like I said, they like coffee shops and you've got to work hard to find that one that suits you. Um, and then sometimes be prepared to wait. Um, and, and that conversation alone can just sort of allow people to access the services they need uh, and not sort of give up on it and then they end up isolating themselves, which is, which is kind of the worst environment uh, for, for growth, you know. Yeah, and I imagine the worst environment possible for someone suffering from PTSD. Well, and, and you know, I, I I call it the pain rainbow. Um, you know, understanding pain, um, whether it's emotional or physical, the worst thing it can there comes a time when it stops just being pain and starts becoming a uh, something that socially isolates you. Okay. Um, and it's hard enough for ex-defence force people to sort of kick around on civilian street because, you know, they talk differently, they act differently, um, and they observe that the civilian population is kind of look at them like, you're not quite right, are you? You know, there's something, and, and they respond to that by sort of going, oh, shit, you know, it's hard enough for me to get out here, and then they have trouble even leaving their own home. So there comes a point when that pain, emotional or physical, it starts becoming feeling like you're the only one going through this. And the thing that compounds it with Defence Force people is we all get trained that, you know, you don't ask for help, you don't accept help, because if you accept help, that means you're weak, and if you're weak, you let the team down. And we'll die before we let the team down, you know. Um, but, you know, what I what I tell guys is, you know, in a small operation, in a small team uh, op- operating, if one of those members is underperforming by 20%, well, then everyone else has to pick up their game by 5%. So if there's something that you need to strengthen in your life, then the best thing you can do for your team is actually ask for develop help. Yourself, you know, because you're making their life easier, you're making them more productive by actually looking after yourself. You're not being selfish when you look after yourself. In fact, it can actually be the best gift you can give to those people in your circle. Yeah, of course. So yeah. let's talk. Uh, let's talk a little bit about you starting with Mates for Mates and what the goal is of Mates for Mates. When uh, when did you find them? How did this all start? What was the drive to start with them, and and what's the goal? Okay, Mates for Mates um, is for any current or ex-serving uh, Defence Force member who is wounded, injured, or ill because of their service. They've they we've been around for about three and a half years in Australia, and like most guys, my way there was I was sort of duped into it in the way that my mate took me to a coffee shop next door. And, you know, I'd heard about mates and mates. I'm like, no, nah, I don't want anything to do with the, the defence force anymore. Um, and then he said, look, we, we had a coffee. I was, you know, high after the coffee, so probably easily manipulated. And um, <laughs> and uh, he said, let's walk over and have a look at mates for mates. And I'm like, oh, okay, let's walk. You know, and then I go in there and I meet these people and uh, I meet one of the uh, trainers who used to train me when I was in the commandos. And, and I was a personal trainer at the time and he said, oh, look, I'm going on holidays in a few weeks. Do you want to cover me? And I'm like, yeah, sure. And when I, I started working there, just sort of doing a bit of relief work, but I observed people were sort of coming in, getting what they needed and going. You know, they, it was sort of a bit like a fast food shop. People would grab their stuff and go. There was no 
reason to linger or stay and, um, you know, people were sort of a bit of, almost feeling ashamed to go in there. And I thought, well, we need to change this from fast food to like a, a gourmet experience where people are happy to sit and hang, you know, because it's in that sitting, being quiet and hanging um, that a lot of the healing takes place. So, um, you know, I, I went to the office ladies and I said, look, is there anyone I can call? You know, there's, there doesn't seem to be too many people in here. And they went, yeah, yeah, sure, here's a list. And um, I would go through this list and I would generally find in the first three to five, two to three minutes of conversation the people were highly resistant to anything because, um, you know, people in positions of fatigue, they've often been promised the world by, uh, you know, other services and then they just get disappointed. So they're very hesitant to um, trust or uh, invest themselves. Uh, but then, you know, coming from a clean space from within yourself, five to seven minutes, things start to change. And then all of a sudden from the eight minutes, if, if, if that conversation got past eight minutes, I wouldn't be on the phone any less than uh, 50 minutes with these people because they finally had a chance to actually, you know, share and talk. And what I discovered is people do want to engage once they feel safe enough to engage, you know. Uh, and so I started engaging with these people, but before I knew it, I found myself getting really fatigued because, you know, I was, you know, I couldn't divide myself up so many times. So I thought, okay, we're going to change this up. I've got to create something that people can access, you know, whenever they want. So I started these social groups that would meet and, at the, you know, it was, you know, at night time, so it was outside sort of, you know, daytime hours, um, at the centre, around the fire, um, really good food, really good barbecue, and then we'd circle up the chairs and we'd, I'd read out, like, this. these are the principles of why we're gathered here, you know. It's about um, creating a space where you can be yourself, you know, knowing that if you talk, you're heard, and if someone else talks, you can hear them. And whatever said here stays here. And it's about sober engagement, okay, because the Vietnam veterans taught us that, you know, five minutes of sober engagement is worth five years' piss talk. So that's sober engagement, safe space, group dynamic, all of a sudden, because I worked really hard to get three or four, it was really hard to get three or four guys just to turn up. But once I got that small group and we got the culture right, when someone joined into that group, all of a sudden they snapped into that culture, which is when you turn up, there's three hands out to shake your hand, make you feel welcome, make you feel relaxed, make sure you've got everything you need. You can, you know, be yourself here. Um, and that really, really flourished. Um, and... From, and I used to do it on the Monday night to sort of set it up for the week. And I, because often when you're helping people, they won't often say, um, I would say a very small minority of people say, oh, this is actually doing something for me, especially blokes. Um, but when I got emails and phone calls from the partners of these guys, then they say, look, after a Monday night barbecue, he is so much better on a Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, you know, that really meant meant the world to me because I was tapping into something that was that was bigger than me and it needed to be because these guys spend more time with themselves than they do with anyone else. So if I could give these guys an environment where they could bring out the best of themselves, 
then all of a sudden it was easier on me and on everyone in the group. And I've been doing that now for about two years, and that Monday night group has now changed the whole culture of the centre. People come, you know, Monday through Friday, and they're happy just to sit, chill out, talk, you know, um, and be themselves. That's amazing, man. Way to go. It's amazing how... um just how out of whack and shitty the the kind of culture was before it, it's it, it's so sad and terrible that people would um shy away from from getting help and shy away from from talking with other veterans i i always imagine that like if i were ever to be like drafted into war or something that at, once i came back like the only thing i would want to do is talk with other veterans well, unfortunately, that gets bred out of you. You know, like I said, you get taught from very early on that, you know, those people that ask for help and, you know, are that's the same as admitting weakness. And an example gets made of that person saying, you know, right, they're not, they're no longer here, that we've got rid of them. Um, and so the culture of, you know, just suck it up, you know, to me is just there to, to compensate for bad management. Yeah, you know? that's so unfortunate. Um, that's great that you did something to change that, at least at, at Mates for Mates, you know? Well, you know, but, but this is how it became very easy once I realized that it wasn't on me to sort of, you know, try and rotate the earth. It was, it was the thing I worked hard on doing was creating that space. And then when people filled that space and everyone had that understanding of that's what happens, then all of a sudden it's like everyone's internal compass shook the shit off and started dialing in the direction they're supposed to go in. Like everyone knows where they need to go. They just need a place where those burdens can be lifted for a second and that compass can swing in the direction where they're supposed to go. And that's what um, I like to think Mates for Mates provides. Yeah, that's great, man. So what what does the government in Australia do to help veterans, I, I imagine it's it's fairly simple. Uh, I'm sorry, fairly simple. I, I imagine it's it's fairly comparable to like what happens here in the states and stuff like that. So, um, like, what does the government there do to help with veterans? And kind of where are the gaps that the government does not help that you need something like Mates for Mates to come in? Okay, well, it's. I mean, to answer that question, okay, the government, they got a lot of resources, right? But I grew up with um, the Aboriginals in Australia. My dad worked with them, and he always said that no matter how much resources you've got, um, if they're applied poorly, you're doing more harm than good, okay? Uh, Working in the Special Forces, that taught me that if you had some really switched-on operators, you only need a small amount of resources to get a hell of an outcome, you know? So... I think the mistake in uh, a lot of government's thinking is that if they pour a bunch of resources, they get a feeling that they're doing something, but they're not, it may not necessarily be applied correctly. You know what I mean? Um, Any good psych will tell you that 85% of their job's effectiveness is to do with rapport, making that person uh, feel safe in that space. So if you have a bunch of resources flowing in, like you might have a big barbecue and, and have a guest speaker, but, you know, how much of that is 
I mean, the, the, the thing I, my template for services, Blake, is it's three Ps, positive, powerful, and permanent, okay? There's a lot of positive and powerful things out there, but are they permanent, you know? So you can do these big, amazing things, but how much permanent change does it actually make? You know what I mean? And when you start asking those questions, you start really understanding that people, um, you know, it's a bit like a plant. Yes, it needs water, but if you just get a bucket of water and chuck it on that plant, it's probably going to, you know, do more harm than good. You know, you've, you've got to sort of drip feed those that water in so it permeates the whole um, the whole system. You, you sort of follow what I'm saying there? Yeah, absolutely, man. And, 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 and the mistake, like I said, a lot of governments make, they look on a piece of paper and go, look, we've got all these resources, we can funnel it that way, and we can tell ourselves we've done some good. That simply doesn't add up to a person in, in, in a, a person who's in a place of fatigue and doesn't feel like um, they're connected to society. Like yeah, I said, the, the thing that they need thing, more than anything is connection. Um, word. And you, don't, exactly you, can't, right. you can't spend money to give someone connection. Yeah. And, and that is something that's built slowly and can sometimes take more than a few years, you know, more than a, than a budget cycle. Uh, so I certainly, you know, don't want to discourage, you know, governments making an effort, but it has to be in the understanding that, you know, what is what is actually effective, you know what I mean? Not just something that you can justify, you know, saying, look, we've spent this much money and blah, blah, blah. Well, let's collect data on the people receiving those um, services and see how much benefit it actually has been given because what I like about Mates for Mates is all the services we provide are highly measured. So we get a lot of, um, you know, it's probably a, you know, a, a good folder of, paperwork that before um they do a uh, uh say an adventure therapy um they have to fill out so we understand where they're at currently and then once they've completed that um uh therapy then they do another questionnaire all right and they can be feeling great after the therapy's done but then we do follow-up in two weeks time in six weeks time in eight weeks time okay to see how much permanent change that powerful and positive experience had you know what i mean and once you understand the template the things that actually knit themselves onto the dna of people you really start understanding that it's there's a lot of subtleties there that that can't be mass produced you know what i mean yeah absolutely yeah unfortunately some things are just um when you try to scale them up, they just don't work as well. They need to be handled at a, a little bit more local of a level. Yeah. There, yeah. You can't mass produce subtlety. Yeah, absolutely. But having, but having said that, it, you know, helping people is something that people naturally try and do. But you are, I always ask the question, what is it, what is it that actually helps people? You know, um, you could give someone a hundred bucks and think you're doing them a favor, but they will use that hundred bucks to get drunk and then crash their car. How much help are you actually giving them? You know, so what I've uh, discovered is that it's it doesn't actually cost you anything to. Um, okay, well, let me just explain. Like, I grew up and I was dyslexic, right? I couldn't do school, but I could see patterns. Okay, um, and 
a pattern I've observed in this world is is the most productive and valuable thing on this planet. It's not like a diamond or anything. It's actually a true friend because around a true friend, you can let your true self out, you know, warts and all, and know that you are held in that space um, because you know that true friend is being sincere. And I thought, well, there's something in that. I can't be a true friend to everybody, but I can give people that space where they can let they feel safe enough to, to bring themselves, all of themselves out. And the only way to be sincere, I discovered, is from a position of completeness. So I have to ask, okay, what does Tim need? I need, you know, so much stuff, so much money, so much intimacy from my wife, so much time with my kids, you know, so much time with my dogs. Okay, then I feel complete within myself. Then um, I can give people that sincere space because if if I feel like I'm in um, deficient in an area of my life, I'll be forced. I can't help it. But if I feel like I'm not getting, if I need more money to feel good about myself, then whoever I talk to, I'm going to try and manipulate the outcome of that scenario so it's going to benefit me. You know, when you're talking to people and you really feel like, you know, they're trying to get one over on me here. Well, we're so used to that. It's, it's actually quite refreshing when you talk to someone and they don't actually have any intent on the outcome. They just have a space that they share with you, you know? Yeah. So going inside myself, asking those questions, I can then, and, you know, you create that abundance within yourself. So you have that interaction and, you know, they might tell you say it's great or they might tell you to F off. That doesn't matter because you're in abundance. If I was just adequate and I spent, say, 20% of my energy on, on somebody, I'm like, well, I'm down 80%. You better do something with that. You know what I mean? Uh, so it stops, it, it allows you to be generous once you create that, you know, abundance of energy within yourself. Absolutely, man. Yeah. And that cycles back to what you said at the beginning of the interview, those lessons that you learned um, through special forces and your work in Afghanistan. And yeah, that's such a good application of that lesson and such a good um, thing for people to think about with regard to doing things like meditation or yoga or what any sort of um, of preventative self-help as it were you know like rather than just trying to do all these things um when we feel super super terrible doing these things to just fill up our cup and fill up our cup and fill up our cup until it's overflowing um and then like you said all of a sudden you just notice that you can have these more genuine interactions with people and um and life is just a little bit more positive and bright um because you're experiencing it from from this place of of emotional fullness yeah, uh, and the funny thing is, I mean, <laughs> one of my favorite sayings, uh, Blake, is you are what you marinate in, okay? You could be a great piece of steak, but if you marinate in shit, you're going to smell like shit and taste like shit, you know? <laughs> so, so, and, and it's, I know, again, this is sort of me challenging everyone's assumption here, and we just take for granted, but there's an elephant in our room. The society we live in, the marinade we live in, is actually a consumer society. Now, we, everyone knows that, right? I don't think we know the actual consequences of of that on our person, you know, because we, you mentioned it before, we think that we have to fill our cup, fill our cup, fill our senses um, to, to find that satisfaction, you know, um, and, you know, we get told that since we're at a very young age that we need to have more, we need to have more. But, you know, the the biggest the biggest deception is when we start believing that, you know, our own happiness and satisfaction 
isn't found within our own hands and feet. Like yeah, happiness totally. and satisfaction is found within you. our own hands and feet. Yeah. You know, and the very concept of, you know, happiness and satisfaction being found outside of yourself, well, guess what? That's always going to be outside of your grasp. You know what I mean? Yeah, absolutely, And, and the problem with this, I mean, to, to even think like this, you need a certain amount of energy um, because you, you really, you don't know how strong the current is until you try, try and start swimming against it. You know what I mean? Um, (laughs) Because we're getting pushed in this direction. We don't even know because everyone's traveling in it. But it's a set of values that create this internal turmoil inside ourselves um, that make us very vulnerable to suggestion, you know, to have your own thoughts. Because, I mean, society knows that if you start thinking that satisfaction and happiness is within your own hands and feet, all of a sudden that becomes redundant, you know. And it doesn't want to be made redundant, so it'll sort of attack you to sort of push you in the direction that you don't necessarily want to go in, but it's easier in the short term. Yeah, absolutely, man. Um, so, Tim, I, I, we've already talked a lot about the kind of the different things that you learned um, via your experience in Afghanistan, both um, uh, from the positive things that you learned and then just like some overall kind of negative experiences and stuff like that. Talk about the things that then you started to learn when you interacted with other veterans through mates for mates and how, um, that kind of impacted the way that you view the world and the things that you learned from working with other veterans. Well, like I said, I started off just making phone calls and then before I knew it, um, it morphed into these, you know, groups that would meet regularly. And then that sort of, you know, we had we had all the services there beforehand, but no one was filling these seats. We'd have these amazing stuff, but we'd be lucky to get three people attend. But then when people started feeling safe and relaxed, things just started to happen almost on their own. Uh I, I just observed that people respond very, very rapidly when they're talking to somebody um, and they know that person is sharing that space with them, you know, in a, in a clean way, not trying to manipulate the outcome of any scenario. And the question I ask myself is, you know, how can I do the most amount of good with the least amount of resources? Um, so I've got to sort of find my my you know position in the universe so to speak where i can invest that energy and it has a massive effect to everyone else because i can invest my energy in all different places without thinking and it won't really do a whole lot of good but if i can find that one place where i can apply myself and observe that the whole universe changes once i apply myself in that one particular place you know what i mean so i've never been able to say this before but i feel that everything i've ever experienced has actually led me to you know, this place and time um, and this particular job. Um, I was, I consider my time in Afghanistan as fortunate because I was able to um, accelerate my learning to what was actually important. And, I mean, this is, I mean, geez, I lost more brothers than I can count on both hands. Um, But what that taught me, Blake, was, the pain of their passing is is the last gift they give you, um, and and let me just explain that. 
when you first lose a loved one, it feels like there's a an impossibly heavy weight that's just crushing you. And three things help time, tears, and talking. And it and it moves that sort of impossible weight further down into your system to become more like ballast. So it's not it's it's lighter, but it becomes more like ballast. So just like you know, ballast in a ship knows that helps the ship know it's up from it's down. You know that that experience um, in death of a loved one helps you know you're up from your down, you're right from your wrong. You know, and I, I do believe you know I can I can make you know the brothers that I've lost still smile by living a life that's lived in that freedom. You know. Follow, you know, what would make them happy? Me living a sad life, not following my instincts, or me living an abundant life and being true to myself. So, to me, um, you know, the pain of their passing is is one way that the the last gift that the the dead give us to show us how to really live. You know, um, and so that has been quite. Um, you know, I had to come to that conclusion before I went insane. Uh, so that has be- given me this ballast, like I said, to actually, you know, go in the directions that my instincts tell us tell me to. You know, um, and part of that working at mates for mates. You know, when you talk to people, they really pick up that you're actually there and you're listening and. And like I said, it's not hard. The hard thing is actually getting to that place where you've actually got space inside yourself for that person and you're willing to engage. And you're fearless because you know, you know, you're in touch with the source. You know, they might, you know, you know, take from you, give from you. It doesn't matter. The fact is um, you've given them something to potentially shape the rest of their lives. Yeah, absolutely, man. That's uh that's beautiful. All of that. I love it, Tim. Um, why don't you tell us what is the best experience that you have ever had um, since you've been with Mates for Mates? Um, probably every two to three weeks, I get a guy coming up to me saying, you know what, I, or, or a partner of a member saying, um, I would have killed myself if I hadn't, you know, come to mates and mates and spoken to you and participated in things man that's uh that's incredible that's i i can't i I just i can't imagine that that's crazy and it's i mean it's it is good but i sometimes you know in my because it's not work to me this is you know this is like a calling um but you can imagine when you play for stakes like that you can fatigue yourself because you're you're so focused on you know services uh for others um and and the thing is it's not hard you know like i remember one occasion um i don't even remember having the conversation with the guy he told me afterwards uh i asked him i said look the boat's going out do you want to come out he's like oh Blake, come on it'll be fun he comes out and then we come back and i said look i'm looking at taking the boat out next week are you going to be around uh, and there was a pause, and then he nodded his head and said, yeah, I'll be around. What I didn't know is he had everything in the car needed to commit suicide. And so you can understand, you know, 
my self-regulation when I'm talking to guys, I've got to, I've got to, you know, I can do more in 20 years than I can in two. So I, I just have to be, you know, again, self-aware of this new area of work. It can, it can um, really fatigue you, you know. So and and then I'm no good to anyone. So I have to do things in such a way where I still check in with myself um, and um, then give the best of myself um, to, to the people that come in. It's good. It's great to have something like that in your life. Um, so I wanted to ask you what the greatest lesson is that you've learned from all of this, from um, being in Afghanistan to working for Mates for Mates. But then this. Uh, entire interview ended up just being like lesson after lesson after lesson. Is there anything else that you would like to add as like the greatest lesson that you've ever learned or have we pretty much covered everything? You know, there is good in probably 92% of all people. Um, and five to 8% of people, you know, they're just whatever they're doing, but they're, you know, we probably call them assholes. So, <laughs> so, I have a – it gives me joy to write off 5 to 8% of all interactions but then allow 92% to be good, you know what I mean? A lot of people when you – you know, it's – people think it's a mistake. We all do it. Like we've let, we've let our true self out. It's been hurt and we tuck that stuff back in and then we protect it, okay? Um, but the problem is when you, when you put those shields up around yourself, you put a lot of energy into those shields. Okay, uh, and it's to, to, to live life trying to avoid pain, uh, it's a bit like putting a steel bucket over a plant and saying, well, that plant's protected. Well, it's dying as well. Yeah. Um, so, so the greatest lesson I've learned is to be willing to pay the, be, pay the price willingly. You know, yes, 5 to 8% of all interactions I have today are going to turn on me. So I have to create enough energy within myself so that I can gladly do it. You know what I mean? As Absolutely. opposed to, oh, do I have to go through this? You know, shit, you know. So, you know, when I rolled out of bed this morning, um, you know, I've got pain from all the injuries I've got. But I said, I have to invest this energy so I can gladly go forward into today. I can gladly play with my kids. I can gladly, as opposed to, I'm thinking about my injuries, I'm, you know, I'm, you know, ruminating on something that's negative. Um, you know, each each day, every twenty four to thirty six hours, um, you know, us as humans, I've observed we're we're more like batteries than generators in the way that we get energy by what we connect to. You know, so I don't I don't trust my own willpower or determination. I trust that when I connect to the things that are important, um, all of a sudden, I'm energized. And I'm in abundance and I can deal with these five to eight percent of assholes that are definitely going to be there. Totally. You know? uh, and so I don't live my day trying to avoid that. I live my day knowing that 92% of my interactions in whatever capacity are going to be incredibly joyful. Right. And that needs to be the focus. That's man. That's it's I'm really happy that that's like your final uh, like advice to leave off on because it's something that I think about so often and I'm sure most people do, but it's like one of the hardest things in the world to actually live like that day to day, which is to your point, like there's not that many people out there that are assholes. There's not that many people out there that are that bad of people, but it's very natural in human nature to put up shields to people, events, anything, life in general 
to protect yourself from a potential bad outcome. The the correct way to be living life is to give every person like when you wake up in the morning decide that you're going to give every person the benefit of the doubt that they are probably in that 92 percent if it was eight percent assholes you know if it's five percent mm-hmm. assholes give everyone the benefit of the doubt that they're probably in the 95 percent treat everyone as if they're super awesome until they give you any reason otherwise you know and, and let it be a pretty good reason that they give you if it's just something dumb like they cut you off in the car like by the way who cares and that's the other thing is like to treat um every event in your life with that the attitude that it's that it's going to be great and um yeah we need a little bit less uh like guarded pessimism or quote-unquote realism and a little bit more optimism you know and if you're really optimistic and life slaps you in the face whatever man it's all good like keep living optimistically don't let getting slapped in the face make you think like oh no i guess i need to get a little more real now like who cares much better off to just live every day with a smile on your face than uh than be protected yeah no i mean realism to me is just a form of energy conservation or being a bit lazy you know um to even think like that you need a certain amount of energy so that's where if we daily connect to those things that energize us then all of a sudden it becomes very easy because you're in an abundance. Like if I know that I'm going to lose 5 to $8 today, I have to earn 5 to $8 more than what I think I need, you know, and that's, that's, that's to me getting real. So I can still be me. I mean, the world is the way it is, not the way we want it to be. So the question is how can we be ourselves with the world being as it is? And to me, the answer that always comes to me is I do it from a position of strength. So you know, every day there is some sort of physical or mental or spiritual discipline that, you know, you participate in, and it's gentle. You don't have to, you know, run to your eyeballs bleed. Um, but it gives you that abundance, that connection to the source, and knowing that whatever interactions you have, yeah, it's taken, you know, that's all they'll get, and I'm connected to the source, you know? Yeah. Amen, brother. Um, Amen. All right, dude. So well, world's problems, and it's uh, not even <laughs> now twenty talking. Uh, yeah, dude. I'm coming up on six p.m. Yeah, you're you're in the morning over there, right? That's right. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. All right, man. So, um, I I am going to go ahead and put up the uh, the link to Mates for Mates on the Half Hour Intern website for the post for this episode. In addition to that, I I have listeners listening to this episode right now. They listen oh, all okay. over the world. So I, I know it, my number two country is actually Australia. So I know there's a lot oh, of people go. listening to this in Australia. Um, I'll night, take fellas. my, let's say, like top five countries, um, and I will look up some great um, institutions working in those countries to help veterans, and um, I'll put links up to those on the Half Hour Entrance site. Obviously, if you live in a little bit more remote of a country, and this has you inspired to um, help veterans in some way and uh, be living the life that Tim is talking about, um, then uh, you can just Google search that stuff for yourself. But there'll be plenty of links up on Half Hour Intern. Um, and Tim, dude, thank you so much for the time. It was so great talking to you. So many great lessons, so many great analogies. You're like the king of making analogies. I love it. And uh, yeah, man, I appreciate it. My pleasure, Blake. Thanks for having me. 
Hey everyone, it's Blake. I hope you all enjoyed the episode with Tim, who is just such an awesome, interesting guy who is doing such good, good work in Australia. So as I mentioned at the end of the episode there, I put up links on the Half Hour Intern site to various charities um, that people can uh, help support veterans in their own country. I chose the top five countries um, that people listen to Half Hour Intern from. So um, if you were in one of my top five countries, there will be a link there if you feel inspired to um, to help out veterans in your own country. Um, and again, just to recap, we have the Half Hour Intern iTunes review contest going on right now. So uh, all you have to do is leave a review on iTunes and you will be entered to win one of three really awesome camping, um, outdoor recreation related prizes, or a half hour intern t-shirt if you leave a really kind of cool, fun, interesting review that I will pick out. Thank you guys so much for listening to the show, and thank you for any iTunes reviews that you guys leave.